this episode of Full Stack Radio, I talked to Kyle Fiedler about common mistakes developers make when trying to design their own products and tips and tricks for leveling up your design skills. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 53. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Adam, and today I am here with Kyle Fiedler, who is a designer at ThoughtBot. How's it going, Kyle? It's going pretty good. How are you? Pretty good. So uh, I guess for anyone who doesn't know you, do you mind just kind of introducing yourself and talking a bit bit about your background and what you do at ThoughtBot? Sure. Uh, So I'm the chief design officer at ThoughtBot. Right now, my role consists primarily supporting the design team. So making sure that all the designers are feeling challenged and happy with their work, making sure that we're getting great projects for design. But also, I continue to work on projects that ThoughtBot gets three to four days a week. So a lot of that management stuff falls into my investment time. So for people who aren't familiar with ThoughtBot, we get one day of investment, which is a day for people to learn or blog or contribute to open source work. Some of my stuff just basically falls into that day. So yeah, I I started at ThoughtBot years ago as a designer, working on projects. Designers at ThoughtBot work on everything from helping our clients with business strategy all the way up to implementation, which in... The web world is is HTML and CSS, so we're working in the Rails apps or uh, whatever kind of JavaScript framework that we're, we're using at the time. How did you get into design stuff? As a kid, I really enjoyed drawing, painting, doing artwork. Uh, that transition to being very curious about computer artwork on the computer. So in high school, I fiddle around with a bootleg version of Photoshop and Illustrator. I, I, at the time, did like basically fake album covers, but also uh, the program for school plays and stuff like that. I went to college for like traditional design, so print design, branding kind of thing. Took a class for, it was actually Flash. Uh, and, and did a bunch of flash design and development and really fell in love with the immediacy of designing stuff for the web. And so that kind of carried over to working with HTML and CSS. And awesome. I think um, a, lot of, a lot of what I, I'm doing now is, is born out of frustration of printing things out and them not looking as they did on, on the monitor. So <laughs> I, I, I really uh, enjoy the, the immediacy of seeing things live and, and being able to, to view them in the, in the format that hopefully they'll eventually be looked at. Awesome. Yeah, I've been a big fan of what you guys do at ThoughtBot for many years now. And the reason I wanted to have you on the show is because, I mean, at least what kind of spurred the idea was, I know years ago you used to run a, um, a workshop at ThoughtBot called Design for Developers. And I know you were saying you haven't run it in a while, but I thought it would still be fun to talk about that kind of overall idea because I know like you guys work really close together with developers and stuff at ThoughtBot all the time. And most of my audience are developers, I think, especially developers who like to work on their own side projects and build their own stuff. So I thought it would be kind of fun to just talk a bit about um, quick wins to like help developers get better at design or common mistakes that you see uh, developers make or, uh, you know, just all sorts of stuff that you think um, might be able to help people that are not trained designers get better and making stuff that is at least uh, not terrible, you know? <laughs> Setting the bar low is, is not terrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that sounds awesome. I, yeah, I haven't that design for developers course. Uh, we used to run that as a workshop. It was a two day workshop in Boston. And, and now it got made into videos and those videos were probably made like four years ago now. So <laughs> it is uh, a little old, but I, I can certainly speak to the, the points that you're trying to make. Do you like, <laughs> do you have specific questions on, on like how to get started or? Yeah, sure. So um, I think like probably the thing that I would be uh, most interested in getting in kicking off with is just kind of general mistakes that you think you see uh, people make or things that they don't notice that maybe they're doing that they could be doing differently that they could really improve with just kind of like understanding, you know, some fundamental stuff. So when you see something that maybe like a developer has put together on their own that they think looks horrible, but they can't figure out why it looks horrible. What are the sorts of things that you notice that you think uh, people could use to improve 
kind of their attempts at design work. <laughs> yeah, I think the the hardest thing or the most challenging for developers is spacing. So having good white space and active white space and being able to space things out and lay things out properly. The the cheat that I, I tell people in this, the workshop is basically use use a scale and base it off of you know your base font size so usually well, I'll I'll start something off at, at 16 basically 1m which is 16 pixels yeah and if you, you just use m's there there's it's there's already a scale built in so just following that and and either using like 1.5 scale so just bump everything up by 0.5m 8 pixels and so that 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 scale kind of gives you a rough outline of, uh, and and if you stick to that, everything should have a relationship, basically. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I think um, that's actually something that I noticed really helped for me too. Is trying to kind of, I mean, I've always thought of it as kind of like limiting my choices in terms of like how uh, I can position things on the screen. Uh, so you don't have like an eleven pixel margin here, then a nine pixel margin here, then a thirteen pixel margin over here, you know, just trying to kind of give yourself kind of like a fixed set of things to apply to hopefully have it kind of reveal itself as there being like some consistency or some kind of like system in place, you know what I mean? And that's kind of like my developer brain looking at it, you know what I mean? But do you think about design in that way at all? Like kind of from a more uh, measurable, I guess, uh, perspective? Yeah, yeah, I certainly do, especially with SAS uh, and being able to put those values and variables. So, So like to your point, I'll I'll create a variable for like base spacing and that'll be the spacing the size that I use for you know my margin or padding and it'll be consistent throughout the site and so that that kind of limiting yourself is is usually a good thing within design not not just with size but also with like typography so limiting the t- number of uh, typefaces that you use. I-, I usually tell people to stick with one or two. I- if if you're new to design, it's a lot easier to design with two typefaces than it is to design with three or four. And making sure having that simple rule, but also the two typefaces, making sure that it's one, one, the easy thing to do is having one be a serif and one be a sans serif, so that there's contrast between the two. Mm-hmm. But sticking to that, and, and again, kind of going back to the size and space rule. So if you have your spacing as you know 1M, having your type be off that same scale. So using the same sizing that you do for your spacing, for your type, uh, you then have more of a relationship between the, the things. And, and you're also limiting the amount of things, that, numbers that you have to keep in your head, yeah, I guess. Totally. So yeah, I, I think younger designers do this a lot where, where the things that they try to do, they usually try to do too much. And, and the like advice I, I give them is, is just like kind of dial it back and, and you know use those constraints to your advantage. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Hey, you're talking about like the the two typefaces thing. I think um, typography is obviously an art form and something that uh, developers struggle with a lot that I know I've struggled with a lot. What are some common other mistakes that you see people make with type? I think the, the biggest thing is is I, I tell developers to, to kind of just use the same typefaces over and over again. As a designer, I, I've designed a bunch of apps, but I won't use a typeface in like client work until I kind of like played with it and tried it out and, and get to know it, which sounds kind of weird because it's a typeface, but like each typeface has basically it, its own personality, right? So having a group of typefaces that you can go to and you know, hey, I know this this one's going to work in most situations. So something like Helvetica or relying on the system font stack right now, like uh, San Francisco and I'm going to butcher is it Segoy? The Windows one. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're, they're solid typefaces and, and so not worrying about all of the other options and just sticking with, hey, like the, these are the typefaces that people are, are going to be used to seeing and, and not worrying about you know, all the other options that you might have at your, your fingertips and, and just sticking to kind of like the basics. Yeah. So like when design and typography becomes a lot more challenging is if you, you want to branch out from there. The, the easiest thing to, so the next step above that is uh, if you're designing a site that has a lot of copy and, and you have titles, to add, start adding typefaces that have more personality in those titles. But sticking to typefaces that 
don't have as much personality, I don't have as much flair, uh, is usually the easiest thing to do as the first step and, and really getting to know how to use those typefaces. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Are there any, um, are there a couple typefaces that you would recommend that are kind of on the safe end of the spectrum if you were going to give people kind of a, a bucket of things to choose from to kind of limit those options again? Yeah, sure. I, I, like I said, the, the system font stack is, is one that I've been going back to a lot recently uh, just because it's really good for UI and it, it's kind of playing into you know what people are used to seeing. Yeah. So you know it, it's 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 an easy default choice. Helvetica is not really a great UI typeface. So some of this kind of goes to back to what you're what you're designing for. And I'm I'm making an assumption that that a lot of your developers are creating applications. So yeah, we're kind uh, of web apps and stuff. Going using some of the Android typefaces that that Google has opened up with Google Fonts, so Roboto and Droid. There's a couple other solid typefaces that I would encourage people to use. Generally, I, I like I usually tell developers to kind of stay away from Google Fonts just because it's un- unlike open source. The the free fonts are usually the ones that 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 people are trying to learn how to design typefaces. And and so some of those, some of them on there are really high quality, but some of them are not. So it's really hit or miss. Yeah, you mentioned like the system font stack stuff. That's actually been something that's been like really um, something I've been leaning on a lot lately because it eliminates like a whole other class of problems, which is like worrying about web font performance and you know, your flash of unstyled text and, and all this stuff that happens. And um, you just get, everything's just like really, really, really fast. And it feels super safe in the sense that like, you know, this is what the operating system looks like. So I shouldn't really have to like, you know, worry, are, are people going to think I made a bad font choice or something? You know what I mean? It's like probably the safest option that you could possibly choose. <laughs> yeah, it certainly is. Um, and and yeah, it's it's a nice, it's a nice default to kind of go back to. I've especially liked the, the the speed of it. Like like you said, there there's no flash. There's no you know have to download the type. You know I've designed for both uh, web and for iOS, and and using San Francisco for both is uh, has been nice the last year ish. How long is? I guess uh, two years. Yeah, something like that sounds about right. I cool. pulled up uh, Google Fonts. The two that I'm thinking of are Open Sans and Source Sans. Mm-hmm. Usually, the the trick that I tell people is if you look at a typeface and it has many weights, so a uh, light, a regular, a medium, a semi bold, a bold, an extra bold, that's usually an indication that that someone spent a lot of time and care designing the typeface. But it also gives you a range to to work. So one of the things with type is that working with contrast is is usually pretty good. So having a contrast in both weight and size and color, making sure that that you're building a hierarchy based on on those kind of components. Yeah, it's interesting actually that you bring up uh, the font weight stuff because I definitely look for that with fonts. Like I always want to be sure that I'm not picking something that puts me into a corner where I'm going to run into a situation where I feel like I don't have a good font weight for whatever I'm trying to do. But I I find it puts me into another problem once in a while, which is like sometimes I struggle between should I be using semi-bold or medium for this or should I be using light or book for this? And is it okay if I use, you know, semi-bold and medium like in the same site or semi-bold and bold or, you know what I mean? Like, should I be thinking about trying to pick a small number of those weights and be consistent with them. Do you think about that in like the same way you think about limiting like some of the other stuff or do you think the opposite you know maybe it's a good way to allow yourself to like really get more flexibility out of a single typeface or what are your kind of thoughts on on that sort of problem it depends on the design but i would encourage you to kind of pick basically like two or three and 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 stick with those weights um again going back to it's it's easier to kind of design with those constraints saying instead of using semi bold and bold i'm just going to use the the bold weight or you know some some Typefaces, uh, actually, San Francisco ha- has a, a regular and a medium, and the you know weight difference is, is very subtle. So being able to design with those subtleties sometimes is, is you know complicated. So removing some of that complication it will will make designing a lot easier. It also for the web it'll make the page weight a, a lot lighter. So thinking in terms of instead of d- downloading like four or five different font files, they only have to download two or three. 
Yeah, um, makes sense. When whenever you're you're dealing with you know external typefaces, you should always be considering the the weight of of those files. Yeah, for sure. If someone did want to use like a third party like web fonts and stuff, do you have like a particular uh, foundry that you like uh, out of kind of all the ones that are competing out there? Um, not not specifically. No, I, I kind of go based on you know what the problem is for the project and what the style is that I'm trying to get. Yeah, we we have our uh, company uh, Typekit account, which is multiple foundries all, all lumped into one, which is a nice kind of step up from Google Fonts. I know we're using Kiln Foundry on the, the ThoughtBot site right now. We're, we're using a typeface called Calibre. But I, I don't generally have like a, a go-to or, or favorite foundry. Cool. Um, so I guess like another thing that I've noticed with like uh, typography or at least like, um, something that, uh, was a real game changer for me in terms of making my stuff, I think look better was, uh, getting an understanding of, you know, the appropriate line lengths, which is, I think an easy thing for developers not to realize that they're messing up or not notice that like, Oh, that's why this looks bad. I'd be curious to kind of just get, uh, some of your thoughts on like choosing good line lengths and kind of what that means, uh, in terms of design yeah line lengths and line height are sometimes things that i see developers kind of messing with or or not messing with and sometimes it leads to super long line lengths you know it, again it kind of line lengths are, are really important for long bodies of of text so we're kind of going back to you know what again what it is you're designing for but i think the rule in print was 60 to 80 characters I think online they've done some research that it, it can be longer. But the the thinking there is that it for your eye to jump from the end of one end of the text to, for it easily to jump to the next line. Um, so the, the longer that you make those lines, the harder it is for someone to kind of jump from line to line. The same thing goes for the line height. So if you have too tight of a line height, and I don't know if I should be should I be explaining some of these? The line length is the length of uh, basically how, how long your par- one line of, of your paragraph will run. And then line height is the space from... <laughs> on the web, it includes the text. Yeah. But basically, the space in between each line of text. So it's like having too tight of a line height can cause readers to have issues jumping from line to line, but also having too much space also will will cause that issue. So the, the end goal is to have people to be able to read the the content of your your app or site. So making sure that the text is is set in a reasonable amount of space. And the best way to kind of do that is to kind of like step away for a little bit and then come back and read. Actually like spend yeah. the time to read through. And if you're having issues jumping from line to line, you know, it's, it starts to raise some red flags yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense i've also heard i guess that like there's a relationship between line length and line height and that like the shorter your lines are the tighter you can keep your line spacing but the longer they are the taller you need to make your line height yep exactly yeah (laughs) uh and also from a design standpoint both of those affect the design because it affects how much weight that the paragraph has on the page. So the the, the closer your line height is, the the darker the paragraph yeah. actually feels. That makes as opposed sense. to the the bigger your your spacing is. Yeah, I hadn't I hadn't thought about that. It's kind of like if you were just like to look at it and blur your eyes, like what that kind of block would look like, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I haven't done this in a while, but uh, you know, you used to like I used to step back from my computer or just roll my chair back just to kind of get a glimpse of like what it looks like from far away. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So you can kind of see like, is there is there like a discernible structure to this thing that like I can still see from a distance or does it just kind of look like one big sloppy <laughs> mess of stuff? Yeah, I, I, doing that certainly helps with the the balance of, of that you have on the page. So that's why I kind of pointed that out. So if the paragraph's heavier on the page, that means that you you need to be seeing what what how how that affects the rest of the elements and how that affects the balance. Cool. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Rollbar. So here's what Paul, the founder of CircleCI, had to say about one of their favorite features of Rollbar and how it helps them keep things running at CircleCI. 
before we used Rollbar, we used a different error tracking service and we were shopping for a new one. And so we did the, the tour and looked at, at Rollbar and all of its competitors. And it was it was really the feature set of Rollbar that was super impressive and that made us go there. In particular, the people tracking, I think, is, is really, uh, it's not just a great feature, but it also kind of speaks our language. Because we're very focused on making sure that customers are happy and we want to make sure that we have like an individual understanding of what happens to each customer. So the fact that we're able to click on this customer is experiencing a lot of bugs and to be able to follow the the progression of bugs that they've been experiencing is very important. If we get an email from a customer and the customer says, you know, your your website keeps glitching on me and being able to to go to Rollbar and to say, okay, you know, this individual customer, this is how they're experiencing the site. Because otherwise you, you have to give like an overall state of things and overall things are looking good because if they weren't we'd be dealing with it so i've been using rollbar a lot lately on my SaaS app nitpick ci and loving it uh, if you want to check it out you can head over to rollbar.com slash full stack radio and you can use their bootstrap plan for free for 90 days so check that out and uh, thanks again to rollbar for sponsoring full stack radio Another topic that I think developers really, really, really struggle with, and this is one of the hardest ones for me, is color, especially even just like choosing colors. Um, It's one of those things where like if you give me like a palette to choose from that's got a very limited number, I can probably do okay. But when you just give me like a color wheel, it's like game over. I have no idea how to pick an orange that is a good orange or a blue that is a good blue. Do you have any tips or suggestions at all on like improving your ability to kind of work with color and choose colors? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the same advice that I have for typefaces is for colors, um, which is basically constrain yourself, you know, go in with either one color in mind or go in with a couple um, and only, only you know, use those. If, if you're having trouble selecting a color, your eyedropper is your best friend. And just basically go and see, go on to, to a site like Dribbble or Behance and see what other designers are using and just basically rip off their color scheme. It's, you know, one of the easiest ways to kind of create your own is, is by stealing someone else's. You know, color is one of the hardest things to, to learn. And honestly, the, the way that I learned about colors is through painting and actually physically putting colors together. Uh, so the, the the simple thing to do is, is really constrain yourself to starting off with, hey, I, I'm going to be gray and, and black and, and red, and I need a red, so I'm going to head over to Dribbble and, and look at that. You, you can actually sort on Dribbble by color. And so looking at the different reds, being like, this one looks about like the red I want, and kind of using that. Then... The next step after that, I would say, is is using shades of that red or or tints. And what that means is making that red just a little darker or just a little lighter. Uh, and and SAS, I'm making an assumption that developers are using SAS, but um, SAS actually has some functions built in that that you can just add a little bit of darkness or lightness, and it uses the HSLA lightness uh, yeah. indicator, I guess, to to kind of adjust that. So that's an easy way to just basically use grayscale and uh, one color and use different shades or lightness and darkness of that color. Yeah. Yeah. I've been working with like the HSL stuff um, for maybe about a year now is when I first like started really like looking into it and trying to understand well all these different kind of ways to represent colors meant. And, um, you know, everyone uses like hex by default, right? Like that's what everyone's used to seeing in CSS or whatever. But when I understood like what HSL actually meant, it like makes so much more sense in terms of like being able to have like a mental model of like what the numbers actually mean and like being able to figure out what the relationship is between things. What do you kind of try to think in HSL a lot when you're working with color in web apps or? <laughs> no, not really. Uh, <laughs> I still use hex, uh, so SAS can can parse the hex value and, and put it into HL, HSL. And essentially, what I'll do is I'll throw that hex value into a variable and, and kind of forget about what, what that <laughs> hex hex actually is. And and again, that's a it's a good way to like constrain what colors I'm using. So yeah. I know that that I'm starting to add more trouble if I'm throwing, you know, if I have ten color variables. 
there's there's starting to become an issue with how many colors I have. So mm-hmm. you can say the same thing. Like you know, SAS is is nice because of that because each one of these things I'll throw into a variable. So like the font sizes I'll have in a variable, and you know, there start to become these red flags, uh, these code smells. I guess you could call them design smells uh, of when I, I'm I'm adding too much complexity into the design. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I was gonna say like for me with the the HSL stuff. What I noticed when I like started understanding it is I started like looking around at sites that I thought looked good and just kind of like using the eyedropper and kind of checking out the colors and trying to understand the relationship between them. And I think like what I noticed is that even if it was maybe like by accident, like almost all these sites that looked really good, um, whenever they had multiple shades of blue or multiple shades of red or whatever, like the hue was always like only off by like one or two or three points at any given time. You know what I mean? And that was something that I think I kind of added to my toolbox is just kind of like, okay, well, if I look at things in terms of HSL and I'm just thinking about adjusting like the saturation or the lightness, but kind of keeping like the base hue the same. So I know it's the same blue. Everything tends to look like better for me than it did when I was trying to uh, just pick a lighter blue or pick a darker blue. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's something that I, I would do in in Photoshop, but it, it certainly makes it a lot easier to maintain in code, being able to just slightly manipulate those uh, up or down a little bit. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I've heard from other people is like this uh, recommendation of like designing in grayscale before you like start introducing color. Is that something that you do or something that you have thoughts on or something that you think is could be a useful thing to practice with? Yeah, uh, I, I think that is an easy way to start. Basically, you're adding constraints to yourself. So again, kind of pushing back on, on what you can use. And, and it's something that in, in the workshop that I did concretely, like color is the last thing that I teach in the workshop. And, and that's on purpose uh, because if you're focusing in on everything else, uh, so the type, the typography, uh, the hierarchy, uh, your your grid and uh, your layout and the spacing that you have. If if you got all of those, then the color is kind of the the icing on the cake. So you know w- when people are 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 learning, not having to think about color, not dealing with all of the variations of color, tends to be a lot easier. I don't always do it. Th- think of that while I'm designing. So I'm not always designing grayscale, but it's something that if I'm having, if I'm struggling with the design, it's something that I certainly turn back to and use as a tool tool out of my toolbox to kind of like dial back the colors, go back to, you know, the standard fonts um, and start really focusing in on the the design. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Outside of, of those components. Yeah. Another thing that I've kind of noticed and kind of seen people talk about uh, a little bit more now, or at least I started to find stuff on it more now, is um, uh, not using like straight up black basically for anything. Like I've never seen like someone use black text on a site and have it actually look good. And I've noticed that basically anything that looks good, they're always using like some variant of gray or even when like a site is using like a dark gray, it's very, very rarely actually like a real gray. Like if you look at like a gray on Facebook is actually still blue. You know what I mean? Is that something that uh, you take into consideration or have noticed or think about? Yeah. So the reasoning behind that is because there is an actual true black in the world. Like you can't actually see true black. So adding in true black onto our interfaces make them seem more fake. This is like a trick that I learned with painting is don't ever buy a, a tube of black paint if, if you're you're doing artwork or, well, I, I guess doing any kind of like landscape or portraiture or realistic life painting <laughs> just because you, you won't ever see black and it, it just kind of muddies up all the other colors. So, so adding in the hint of blue or a hint of another color into your gray makes it a little more personable, a little more human. Yeah, it, it's a it's a nice touch. That's not to say that that you shouldn't ne- never use black or you should never like add a straight gray, but it's it's certainly something that I always usually take into consideration. Yeah, That's a tip that I heard that I thought was kind of interesting was to kind of like pay attention to like shadows in the real world. 
and kind of you look at a shadow and you kind of just think of it as being like a, a black or gray overlay on something you know what I mean but if you just look at it really objectively and kind of like think like what is that actual color that I'm seeing on my desk where that shadow is and you start to notice that like well these things aren't gray at all or they aren't uh, black at all you know maybe that shadow still is yellow or whatever if it's on like a yellow object but because of like the context around it it seems not the same it's almost like like it's playing like a trick on you and then you try and apply like what you think you're seeing and it doesn't look right because you're not doing it the same way that it's actually happening in the real world. You know what I mean? Yeah, that, that's certainly like yellow is, is a really good example of that because if you put any kind of black drop shadow or shadow on yellow, it looks really awful. So uh, usually when you see a shadow on yellow, it's it's a shade of brown or tan. Uh, it's a darker, basically a darker yellow. Uh, and so that's where that manipulation with, with SAS comes in really handy is like just throwing in that darken on that yellow to, to kind of build in some some levels of, of, of 3D-ness, I guess, reality. <laughs> uh, the other trick to that is is also making sure that if you are doing that kind of thing to make sure all your shadows and gradients are going in the same direction. Because if, if you notice, <laughs> usually there's one main source of light wherever you are. And, and so having that one main source of light, you, you see shadows and gradients in all one direction. And if you kind of go against that in your interface, you're kind of going against what everyone's used to seeing in the human brain. And so it kind of confuses people. Yeah, totally. That makes sense. Uh, what are kind of your thoughts, I guess, on the whole... Um I think we're kind of finding like a nice balance these days, but there was like a stark kind of like skeuomorphic thing going on for a while. And then everyone went real flat. And then you kind of see what like Stripe is doing, which is like more of like a an in-between sort of thing. I don't know. I'd just be interested in getting your thoughts on kind of like uh, what you think works best on the web. <laughs> <laughs> my, my answer is kind of boring. It, it, it depends. It depends on who you're designing for and what you're designing and I think all of those things should be taken into consideration before you kind of decide on a style. So I wouldn't be prescriptive and say you should always kind of go with a flat or you should go always go with like a, a material design because I'd probably be wrong a lot. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, judge, you know, who you're designing for, what problems you're trying to design for and the style that you're going for. I would say, like, if you're designing for iOS, it should probably look like it belongs on yeah. the operating system. And if you're designing for Android, it should look like it's designed for that operating system. Just because you're, you're, if you go against that, you're making a, a decision to to ch- change people's mental model of, of where they are. Um, which you know, that even you could say that there there are times when may- maybe that's appropriate. Cool. So yeah, uh, you know. Uh, it depends <laughs> of course always does something that i think is maybe like an interesting kind of uh example to talk about uh, as far as something i like i know that i've done and seen other developers do is uh a lot of time you might just like reach for like a framework like bootstrap or something right and you're building something and uh, maybe you have some buttons on the screen and they have to do different things and everyone just kind of instinctively just like looks to see, well, like, okay, well, what are all these like different buttons that like Bootstrap offers? Like, well, I'm going to make this button green and this one's a different action. So it's going to be red and this one's a different action. So it'll be the light blue button. And you end up with these like really colorful kind of interfaces where like everything is like really competing for attention where you're just making the colors different because you think like, well, that'll kind of communicate that they do different things or whatever, uh, but it never ends up looking good. So it's not necessarily so much a color question, I guess, as it is like thinking about like interface design in general. Um, but is that like the sort of thing that you you notice people doing or um, what are the sorts of things that they could think about doing instead? Yeah, I, I, I have, especially with Bootstrap, because I, I feel like it's really easy, I guess, to do it. Uh, I have seen that a lot. I think there it just gets away from the primary goal of what the design and the app should should do. So it's kind of telling you that either you're building too many features or you're putting too many features in front of the, the, the user that they don't necessarily need to see all at once. Kind of going back to the workshop, uh, one of the things that I, I ask people to do before they even start designing, uh, and this is something that we'll do in our design sprints, is really get an understanding of what the problem is you're trying to solve you know everything we've talked up 
to now has been you know focused around visual design. Design encompasses a lot more than that. So thinking about the experience that you want your users to have and what kind of experience that is, there's certainly like different types. Like Mailchimp is a good example of something that's a lot more fun. Whereas like you don't want your banking website or web app to be fun necessarily. <laughs> So thinking about the user's state of mind and then going back to the problems that you're trying to solve. And uh, we're, we're fans of jobs to be done at ThoughtBot. So thinking in terms of what you're competing against for your jobs and, and what the primary job is. So you know, back to your example of there are too many buttons, I would say, what is the primary job that you're trying to solve for this app, for this screen? And that then is the button that should be having all the focus. Yeah. And and either removing or dialing back the other buttons that aren't necessarily as important. I think like a common example that I see people do all the time is they create like table layouts. Um, and maybe in this table layout, maybe one of the things that you can do with an item in this table is like remove it, right? Like delete it. And everyone's instinct is to put this big red delete button in the on, on that row, even if it's like really just a tangential thing like on that page and not really like the primary purpose of coming to that page. Yeah, that, that is uh, especially with like CRUD apps. Uh, it's really it, it's <laughs> it's something that I see a lot, too, is most of the time you're not going to want to delete something. And and so putting that somewhere where it's a lot harder to do is usually a good thing because A, it's out of the, the, the user's way. And, and B, that way, like they don't, they don't have to dive in and accidentally hit delete button that's big and red. And so, yeah, I usually for our Rails apps, I'll, I'll put that, that delete button. I'll, I'll hide it on the edit screen towards the bottom. And the same can be said with, with like a cancel button. You know, typically people know that they can just hit the back or just not hit save instead mm-hmm. of hitting cancel. But again, the, the, the both of those are, are are decisions that kind of depend on on what the goal is. Yeah. There 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 could be a case where deleting multiple things at once is is a primary action. In that case, it's it's probably important to keep that there in the table. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I think like um you know, on a, like a related note, something that I saw one time that had like kind of a lasting impression with me that seems like so obvious in hindsight, but was like kind of really eye opening at the time was there's like really famous um, question on the UX stack exchange site where it's like, if I have a, if I have a delete button and someone presses it and it pops up a modal, like a confirmation modal, like, do you really want to delete this? Yes or no. Which button should be red and which one should be green? Like this person was like, baked in this mindset of like the positive action should be green and the negative action should be red. But like, I really want to delete it. It's kind of like a danger thing. So yes, should be red. You know what I mean? And no should be green, but none of it made sense to the person. And you know, their question was which one should be red and which one should be green. But like the, the best answer, you know, was like, well, the yes, delete this should be red. And the other one, the cancel button, which is not no, it's cancel, you know, it should be like a gray or something. You know what I mean? Like, just like a totally different way of like presenting the same information, like totally outside of what the person had in their head as like, well, one of them has to be this color and one of them has to be that color because success and danger or whatever. Um, and it just kind of like really was a good example to me of like, oh, maybe there's like different ways to actually think about like presenting this stuff uh, where you can kind of throw away these preconceptions or I don't know, it just, it just was interesting. So I don't know if you stumbled across that. Um, but I thought it, it's kind of an interesting example, I think. Yeah, that is, that's a really good example. My initial reaction is like, why does one have to be red and one have to be green? Like doesn't necessarily, but, but that, that solution you gave is, is essentially what I was kind of talking about, which yeah. is like, you know, hopefully if they've already clicked on the delete button, the, the primary action there is, and the, the motivation is, is to delete the thing. Um, they're only, only sometimes going to hit that by accident. So making that the button and then putting the cancel as a secondary button below it or, or, or wherever it is, you know, it, it then creates some, some sort of hierarchy and focus of like, yes, this is the, the flow that I really want you to follow, but gives them the, the kind of out with the secondary action. Yeah. So making sure that there is that hierarchy and, and the row of buttons uh, that you talked about earlier that are all different colors just doesn't have that hierarchy and that focus. Yeah. Yeah. I think like it kind of touches on like a related topic, I think, which is that I know that I kind of got stuck on this for a while and I see a lot of other developers get stuck on it is basically worrying 
too much about visual design or trying to make up for bad interface design with good uh, visual design. You know what I mean? Like picking the right green for the cancel button is never going to make green the right color for the cancel button. You know what I mean? Right. So something that I've noticed for my own stuff is I found that like, I've been able to make a lot better progress with like churning out things that I'm happier with by like almost focusing less on the visual stuff and just focusing more on like what you're talking about with like the hierarchy of the actions that you want to present and trying to make everything kind of like clear, you know what I mean? Like make it obvious, like what the purpose of this page is and uh, try and reduce the amount of like things that are competing for your attention. And I found that um, it's a lot easier to make that look good visually than it is to make something else uh, that has all those problems look good visually. Like it's almost one of those things where like you're trying to solve a problem with color when like that's not the solution. Um, so do you have any thoughts on like where developers should be like focusing when it comes to uh, improving their interfaces? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head that like visual design is kind of a layer on top of the usability of the the app. So making sure that every feature that you're creating uh, it has a purpose and what that purpose is, and it kind of points to solving uh, a problem or the the jobs to be done for your user. I think focusing in on that, like you, there's there's clear examples of apps that didn't have very good visual design, like Google to start off with. The visual design was kind of terrible, right? But the the usability, the the ease of use of a single text box on a page was insanely simple and it solved several jobs, I guess. Yeah. Um, so it, it made it incredibly easy to use, but at the same time, it didn't look really great. So Google has, has been very successful with that up until about now where, where they've really changed, their, I guess, how, how design leads projects or how they're, they're thinking about design on their projects. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think you know focusing in on solving solving real problems and what those primary problems are and, and what the secondary problems are so like if you are struggling with a green for a cancel button like that then is maybe uh, you know a clue of like do I actually really need this cancel button if if it's in my interface and it's causing this much problem do I actually need this feature is this feature needed by 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 users yeah so yeah, like usually when I run, I I run into that same situation of, of like I'm I'm trying to fit this button in to this interface, and and so when I'm struggling with that, it's usually a, a you know a good hint for me to be like, is this is this actually needed? Like what what problem is this trying to solve? And and so dialing it everything back to, you know, solving someone's someone's job, yeah, is the best thing that you can think about. I think the other thing. Um that I find helpful about like focusing on that side, especially focusing on it first anyways, and then focusing on it as a developer is that it's a, it feels a lot easier to look at it objectively. Like it's easier to like measure. Is this like a more usable interface than this interface than it is? Is this a better color than this color? Or is this a better font than this font? You know what I mean? In terms of like, just do my eyes like it. And I found that like, it's, it was a really revelationary for me to kind of figure out like well by like really leveraging like that side of things and trying to optimize the things that like I can much more objectively like measure which one's better than the other it's surprising like how good the designs could get even just putting all your effort on that side you know what I mean yeah I mean it's it's certainly what we focus on at the beginning of our apps is we don't focus on the visual design usually at all that that comes later. So focusing in on making sure that that you're you know solving the user's problems, uh, and and, and you, you say it's, it's a, a lot less objective. Uh, it's it's nice because you can actually have usability tests that that'll show you whether yeah. your app is easy to use. It is easier to kind of do that stuff because there is a test against you know how usable it is. Yeah, for sure. 
Just wanted to take a minute to thank Hired for sponsoring Full Stack Radio. So searching for a new job can feel stressful, scary, time-consuming. You know, you got pushy recruiters trying to sell you on roles that you don't want, or job boards that make you feel like you're throwing your resume into a black hole never to be seen again. As sometimes you go through the whole interview process only to find out at the very end that the salary offer or company culture doesn't match what you're looking for. So Hired is the world's most intelligent talent matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities in engineering, development, design, product management, data science, sales, and marketing. The goal of Hired is to make your job search faster, focused, and stress-free. So instead of endlessly applying to companies and hoping for the best, Hired puts you in control of when and how you connect with compelling new opportunities. So you just fill out one simple application, and then top employers apply to hire you. So over a four-week time frame, you'll receive personalized interview requests with upfront salary information, so you can make informed decisions about which opportunities to pursue over a condensed timeline. Hired offers access to more than 4,000 innovative employers, including big companies like Facebook, as well as smaller emerging startups. And the size and type of company you want to connect with is totally up to you. So right now, Hired can help you find new opportunities in 17 major cities in North America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. And they keep all your information totally private, so there's no way that your current employer or past employer can see that you're looking for a new job. The best part about Hired is that it's completely free to you as the person who's looking to get hired. In fact, Hired will actually pay you a $1,000 hiring bonus if you take a job that was offered to you through Hired. And for Full Stack Radio listeners, they're actually doubling that offer to $2,000. So if you're a Full Stack Radio listener who's looking for a new opportunity, you can use Hired to look for a new job. And if you take one through Hired, you'll get $2,000. So if you're interested in more details about that, you can head over to www.hired.com slash fullstackradio to find out more. Thanks to Hired for sponsoring the podcast. Back to the show. So um, maybe let's start wrapping things up. I'm curious to know, like, how learnable do you think uh, design is? Do you think it's something that you have to, like, have an innate talent for? Do you think, like, someone who whose best effort is terrible can eventually get to the point where their best effort is something actually quite good? And if so, like, what do you recommend people focus on and to be able to kind of improve those skills? Or how do you think they should work towards improving those skills? So my outlook on, on almost any kind of new skill is, is that it's just uh, your drive and your desire to learn them. So I would say that design and programming, like as long as you have the drive and the passion for doing it and you're willing to churn out a ton of really bad design until you start to kind of get, get things where you want them to be, I, I think that, that that's really, that's the, ma- the main thing that, that I think people need to have is, is the time, the desire, the passion to, and I guess the patience to kind of uh, do a lot of bad design before they they get to doing good design. And I think all, all of the designers that I know, you, you start out not doing really great design, but over time, you kind of just keep on getting better and better and better. I would argue that programming is the same way, that it's just all about taking the time to learn programming, programming language, and writing really bad code after really bad code until you get to a point where you're like, hey, this is why this is bad, and, and this is how, how I can kind of improve upon it. And yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think based on that, I would say it's just a matter of time and desire to, to, to iterate on, on the designs that you're doing. Awesome. One thing that I find has helped me is uh, kind of looking for things that I think look good, like trying to find inspiration and stuff like that. And I guess just like really trying to pick apart, like what is it about this that like they did that I wouldn't have done that made it look good or, you know, trying to re-implement something and then putting them side by side and being like, well, why does theirs look different still? And why does mine look bad? And what made theirs look good? Um, is that something that you've ever done or something that you would recommend people tr- trying if they're trying to get better at this stuff? Yeah, certainly. Uh, I, I think basically what, what you're doing there is your own version of a critique session and design just, just like programming, like uh, in order to get good at programming or, or not in order, but one of the best ways to get good at programming, I think, is, is to basically submit pull requests and be told how how you're writing bad code, right? <laughs> so getting that feedback is is, is this similar to design. So submitting, put, putting your designs up in a place where you feel comfortable getting concrete feedback is, is really helpful. But also giving other people feedback on their designs and, and uh, constructive criticism uh, is really important as well. Being able to talk about design 
uh, was one of the the core skills that I tried to teach in um, the Design for Developers course because, you know, I feel like as developers, the best thing that you can do is learn designer's language. And I think the, the opposite of that is true. So the best thing for designers to learn is the development language so that we understand what each other is talking about. So understanding, you know, we, we've tossed around a lot of design words throughout this, like line height, line length, hierarchy, and understanding what those things are and, and not necessarily needing to know how to design a really great hierarchy, but being able to understand what hierarchy is and when you're talking to a designer that you're working with, being able to communicate, hey, there are issues right now with your hierarchy and being able to give that constructive criticism is a really valuable skill. From from my standpoint, I, I love working with developers that that can be able to voice their their opinions in a concrete manner. Because as much as it, design is objective, there are certain concrete things that you can talk about uh, and, and reasons for doing specific things. So, you know, picking picking colors is, is one of those. Like we going back to the example of, of red, like there there should be a reason why you're picking red and not, not just because you enjoy the color red. Sure. And and, and using the typefaces that you use. So having those those reasons and being able to defend, uh, argue like why you chose those or being able to talk about why someone shouldn't have chose those is, oh, is a really valuable skill. Awesome. Uh, well, maybe that's a good uh, note to, to wrap up on. Is there uh, anything else that you wanted to share or leave people with uh, on this topic? Uh, I, I don't I don't think so. I, uh, do, did we say the course that I do, do the videos you can get from Upcase? Okay, I'll make sure to link that up. Other than that, uh, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Where do you look for inspiration and stuff? Uh, the best place for me has been Dribble for uh, a while. Just looking at the the popular shots there, the cliche answer would be like, "Oh, just go outside." <laughs> you know, I, I think there there's certainly something to that. Um, there's also certainly something to seeing what other people have done, uh, especially while you're learning. So there's a Chrome extension called Panda that you'll see most designers have installed. Uh, that also has a bunch of other resources that of other sites uh, to go to, to to kind of check out design. Cool, man. Well, thanks a ton for coming on and uh, chatting to me about this stuff. It's been fun. Yeah, it has. Thanks for having me on. Cool. If anybody is interested in uh, show notes for this episode, they'll be at fullstackradio.com slash 53. If you can rate and review the show on iTunes, that's always helpful, uh, getting us in front of more people. And thanks to Hired and Rollbar for sponsoring this week's episode of Full Stack Radio. Thanks, everyone. See you next time.